Well, I was enjoying a visual tour of your artwork yesterday, I have to confess. And I'm going what? to do it right here in front of everybody. Are you serious? Yeah, I went, let me tell you what I did. I went from painting to painting in your studio. And I began to notice a recurring theme, and I don't think it ever really dawned on me before. And, it, and the reason I'm bringing this up is I want to see if this is something that actually goes through your mind when you are when you're, you're painting. <laughs> is the theme that they're unfinished? No, that's not it. Okay. Although that could be maybe for some of them. No, I'm just kidding. But to me, even though your work is visual art, I could sense, I could sense a melody within your landscapes and your mm. portraits were also to me very melodic. How do you feel about that? Mm, I think you're projecting. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I think, well, I think you see, really? I, well, really? I think that, um, that is art though. You know, I think that art is many things to many viewers, many mm -hmm. different things. And I would sort of expect and hope that, that it's melodic to you, knowing how you, how much you feel and think and see in melody. Oh, but now see, this seems like a canned response to me. Really? It does. And I, well, that I just means insincere. I'm not, I'm not okay. insincere. Well, well, but what is it to you rather than, rather than uh, rate or think about or, or give me a response mm. to my response? I want to know what yours is. What, what is going on in your mind? And that's a simple yes or no. Is, is it melodic yes no. to you or is it not? And it is if not. it's not. No, it's not. But um, I mean, there is, so there's no music. In, oh, in no. Your, okay. Mm -mm. okay. No, there's no music. Um, there's a lot of uh, sensation. There's a lot of movement. It's more of a bodily sensation mm. when I'm painting. And when I look at something that I've painted and, and it really creates almost a space in my mind and... Um, Really, it is almost more of a place to inhabit mentally. Well, because, and the reason I even bring up the fact that, you know, to me it's melodic is that you're a violinist, you're a musician as well. And we play music together a lot. And you know that, and I've said before that when I'm writing music, it's visual to me. Mm -hmm. And I've had, you know, sort of the same response from others. And in your landscapes and the things that you do, there, there are melodies to me. It seem obvious, and so when you're when you are painting, you're listening to music. But so, I'm, I'm trying to convince you that you're. I see that, <laughs> <laughs> but I do love. I have to say, I mean, because I think uh, paintings and visual art, like you mentioned, it's it is interesting as as an art form that it is so open to the interpretation of the viewer. And you know, all mm -hmm. other art forms do have an element of that, but I know that when you walk through a gallery, I mean, one painting will will move people in wildly different ways. So, and that's where I really wanted to get this to is interpretation, mm. which you pointed to. It's in the eyes of the beholder, as, as they You're say. You're so funny though. You're like, no, you hear music. <laughs> Oh, you, you do. Okay. No, you, you, you're hearing music. <laughs> but I have to say, I've never been, and this is, this is interesting. I mean, because I've really never been someone that creates melodies in my mind. That's not something that flows naturally within me at all. Um, so, but I love that, that I would be so interested to hear what you hear when you look at something I've painted. I could do that. Yeah. I, give me one of your paintings one day and let me take oh. 15 or 20 minutes just to give just a little bit of a melody <laughs> 
yes. that that is coming through the visual. That would be pretty cool. That would be it? very cool. And you know what you should really do is when you do it in concert, um, instead of putting music up on the stand, you just put the painting there. <laughs> <laughs> and and you, well, now you've seen the artists, haven't you, that paint to the music and they do it in front of a crowd. Have yes, you ever seen I that? have seen that. And yeah. there's, there's a concert and they, they will just yeah. start painting. That's really cool. Well, so what do you, do you hear something when we go through a gallery? Are you, and you're, I mean, you're appreciating the art, artistry as much as I am. Is it, what's going through your mind? What are you thinking about? Or do you even know? Um, yeah, it's, it's. It's very um, textural. It's a it's a very real sensation. It's sensation based, um, and, I, and and again, and it's it's a very difficult thing to describe. But paintings create a space, and it's as if you can sort of step into them. It's like it's like you can I can look at any painting, and it's as if a room has been created, and I can step into that room that only that work mm. has created, and that room has a very very specific feeling and movement to it and just from your core out and I'm not doing a great job oh, of it I think but. you are I'm I'm uh, gripped by your by your description it's it, it's less ex- exterior and more again it's a place it's a space because we could go into a gallery and see six or seven people standing in front of a Van Gogh and each one of them is having a different experience mm-hmm. from the same piece of art. Absolutely. Well, I mean, take a Van Gogh, and if it's if it's maybe the wheat field, you know, with the workers in the wheat field, it's as if I can smell it and feel it, and the wind, and it just becomes instantly real. And it's, but it's from the painting. You should have been in the Secret Garden, the movie. <laughs> That's what that reminds me of. The little girl in her bedroom and the colorful wallpaper and it comes to life oh, yeah. when she's in the bed. I'm sure that I've seen wallpaper yeah. come to life many, many times in my life. Yeah. Well, well, here's something really interesting for us to consider. Okay. Whenever there is beauty of any kind, beauty, and it's, again, it goes back to the interpreter or the one that's doing the interpretation. There's beauty there, though. Mm-hmm. kindness, uh, the recognition of the goodness of simple things in our life. As a creative creator, which to the extent that we will allow ourselves to be. <laughs> <laughs> to the extent that you'll get out of the way. And and go ahead and do your role, do your thing yes. as the, to that extent, uh, which all of us are, by the way. Everybody has is a creative creator into in a way that relates to their own genius of purpose. So we look for the expression of that interpretation within ourself. Mm. We don't look for it as if you were looking for the thing, however, because it's not a thing. When we talk about beauty and kindness and goodness and, and the simple things or in the simplicity of life in, in the hues of a painting or in the, the melody of music, it's, it's not an actual thing, and that's kind of what I think I want to get into here. Beauty is not a thing, mm-hmm. um, and, and neither is kindness. It's like the collective brilliance of a clear, starlit night. Goodness has no form. Mm-hmm. It's timeless. It is at peace with itself, and it just simply is. And beauty in the fullness of any present moment 
is infinitely more than the words that attempt to describe its place. So when you're able to sense it directly within yourself, which is what we're talking, how we started off here, you know, what's in me is different than what's in you, even though we are triggering whatever that is from the same stimuli. Mm -hmm. But you sense it directly within yourself and you move beyond the edges of boundaries and into the blissful state of being when you contemplate the feeling or the being mesmerized by fill in the blank. Well, it's interesting as you're describing the, the sensation beyond the labels of beauty or good or um, many times we have moments of being forced into that understanding which is very cool. Um, for example, if you're standing out at Antelope Flats at the base of the Tetons, all you can do is go, wow. <laughs> that's really all you have. Um, the idea that you're going to say, that's, that's really pretty, is that, that doesn't happen. So I think it, it's almost as if sometimes we can, in this really be- amazing way, uh, be overwhelmed enough to already get there. But that's the sensation that we can take that and overlay it in these other areas where maybe you're not being forced into that recognition. That force that's forcing a person into that place of recognition is higher consciousness. Mm. Most of us need to be forced to be impelled by a sunset. (laughs) And even even then it doesn't always work. Because, so when you sense something as wonderful and without words, it could be a sound. It could be one of those uh, colorful birds that are uh, uh, flittering about out behind our home. It could be music. It could be a sight or a touch. When you're consumed with the beauty of it, when you choose to inhabit, for example, loving kindness toward creation... When you choose to inhabit um, that kindness or appreciation toward anything, toward something else, another human being, notice the inner awakening to the source of creation and your oneness with the experience the next time this happens. Mm. And rather than to mindlessly go through the experience, when you're in that gallery or you're out walking on the beach at sunset, pay attention to the source of creation within your own inner experience, uh, communicating these thoughts and feelings to you. Because it's the state of consciousness in awareness that it's not defined by that which is good or bad. It has no labels, it just simply is. So, and that was the reason for the struggle to begin with, with us trying to put words to your experience in painting mm. or my experience in writing music, because it goes far beyond words. It just mm. simply is. Well, and if I think about any time I've had the, the type of experience that you're describing, where you're, you're sort of so overwhelmed, you're pushed into this, this sense of higher, of higher consciousness, um, it's the noise, it's the lack of noise that's always so... Uh, loud (laughs) the silence is always very loud and so it really strips away the chatter in your head all the little details that we like to sort of string together and keep in our pocket at all times you know always scanning our life looking for things that we're missing or that need to be done the lists the concepts and all those things are pushed to the side and completely replaced with as you're saying just just being 
Well, most people in their exhaustive search for something significant to happen to them in life continuously miss the importance of the insignificant, which may not be insignificant at all. Wow. Wow. That's, um, that's personal. <laughs> I took that. That's a personal attack, Steve. Uh, but no, that's, that's, be- that's wonderful. Isn't it? Isn't that wonderful? So, um, we're all in search of, of sig- huge, significant being significant in it within our own life. And we might all just be missing it by labeling many, many things as, as insignificant. Continuously missing the importance of the insignificant, which may not be insignificant at all. Wow. So cultivating qualities like beauty and kindness and goodness uh, within yourself, within oneself, all of that, it requires patience and it requires practice, especially if you don't already, if if those things do not already resonate strongly within you, then it's, it's, you're going to have to learn to ride Mm. that bike because it's with consistent effort that it is definitely possible to nurture the qualities of being a kinetic believer. And a big part of this is being willing to even try in the first place and be being willing to to not label things as failures, to not have some sort of predisposition that just has to occur whenever you're trying something new. We were laughing the other day at um, both of us like to watch Bob Ross. You know, he's so relaxing. Man, oh man, you need a minute of meditation or a guru <laughs> or a guru <laughs> or, there yeah. bob ross is your guy oh, he's fun. but we were laughing at um you know sort of the uh, anxiety that it gives you when he's completed this beautiful backdrop and then he'll take a big brush and draw a huge black line across most of the canvas and he's obviously creating this some sort of base for an amazing tree or a rock or something in the foreground but when you've accomplished something so beautiful and so perfect mm-hmm. you the idea that you're going to add something that could be a mistake it, it's you feel it you feel it when you're watching him oh but, my heart sinks every time he does the black swipe across the beautiful <laughs> blue lake that exactly just, you know, but isn't that what we need to be <laughs> do that but isn't that what we need to allow ourselves to do we have to be able to achieve these things and have these hearts desires but then continue to grow and and just because something good has shown up it, it's not something to now cling to um just ex- accepting that it, the good is always going to continue to come. The better is always around the corner. Even if you just had the better show up, there's another better waiting on you. Well, all of these things take practice, which is yes. mindfulness. A KB mm-hmm. practice is mindfulness. And not everybody is naturally inclined toward noticing beauty. Not everybody is, is naturally inclined toward kindness and goodness and practicing mindfulness, mm. which displaces egoic strongholds in your life in order to open consciousness to the recognition of beauty or to define something as being beautiful rather than a, the thing being beautiful. It's up to the interpreter. But that's not natural to uh, a lot of people. You and I once visited a, a historic tree just outside of Charleston, South Carolina, mm-hmm. and it's called the Angel Oak. And if you've not been there before, I recommend that any of you guys, uh, if you're ever in the Charleston area, go look at, go see the Angel Oak. It's worth it. Yeah. Hundreds of years old. But we were there with another couple and he mumbled something about it just being a tree. Because we had been there for maybe two or three minutes. Yeah. and, and I, I guess was, he was maxed out. 
Well, and it was probably my tear or something that also caught his eye. <laughs> he got triggered that and you were. It, he was triggered by my <laughs> by my emotional state of being. But regardless, your sensitivities. Yeah, that that was probably more than anything. But so he says something about just being a tree. Well, it, the beauty here's the thing with with me and in that situation, the beauty of the tree's long life, and the evidence of its life force within its outstretched branches. It was awe-inspiring and, and very spiritual in the communing with, with life in that way. So mindfulness involves being fully present and attentive to the current moment that you're in, helping you to notice and to appreciate these qualities in your environment and, and thus your interactions with your environment. And like you're saying, it, that takes practice. Uh, the awareness that it takes, the sensitivities that, that are required, you can cultivate those. We can cultivate those as we move through life because I have to say, I've seen other um, trees, maybe they weren't quite as big or old, but they were maybe just as beautiful, but they didn't have the same energy. There, there's an energetic at this specific tree, the angel oak, that you can sense when you're there. It, it, you can quite literally commune with it in a, in the time that you're there. But as you're saying, those sensitivities, they're, they're not necessarily by default. And the more you practice this, the more you're going to find the beauty in the uh, intrinsic environment of the what otherwise would have been the insignificant mm. and the smallest. And because it's, it's not necessarily about the historic value or lack thereof. It's not about the historic significance or any of that stuff. It's just about the sentient life force of creation itself that the true artistry of, of kinetic belief begins to take hold and manifest into an appreciation for all of life, for all other people, regardless of their status, regardless of their, their wealth or lack thereof. One historical figure who exemplified mindfulness credited it for enhancing his creativity, and that was Beethoven. Mm. Even though the term mindfulness, I don't think it was being used during his time. Many, and if you look at it or, or read some of the biographical, autobiographical um, uh, writings, uh, biographical with Beethoven, <laughs> many of his habits reflect principles of mindfulness. Hmm. Beethoven, was, he was known, for example, to take these long, solitary walks through the countryside as part of his daily routine, which he found essential to his creative process. These walks were a time for him to, to connect with nature, to connect with himself, away from distractions and all of the demands of, of uh, his daily life. And he used this time, it was noted for deep reflection and for observation of the sights and sounds or uh, whatever he, his sensory uh, mechanisms, mechanisms would interpret. But that was his, his uh, observation that was inspiring to him. In fact, his sixth symphony, also known as the Pastoral Symphony, is one of the most prominent examples of the inspiration that uh, Beethoven derived from nature. Mm. And we know this because it was in his, his letters and also some of his personal notes. He often wrote about the tranquility that he found in nature and how it nurtured his creativity. He was, he was known to carry a, a notebook with him during his walks, and it was said that he would just jot down musical ideas as they came to him, which is a practice that suggested that he had this heightened state of awareness and this sense of being present in the moment. 
So, I mean, obviously, while his life was far from being peaceful, he faced many personal struggles, including increasing deafness, which uh, yet it was his ability to remain fully present in his creative process and to derive all of that inspiration from his surroundings that that just beautifully demonstrated his mindful approach to both life and to his, his art form. What an inspiring thought um, that so, so much value can be derived from engaging with nature and the things that, you know, the point you're making, the things that most people would deem insignificant. Oh, it's just a tree. Oh, it's just a, it's just this, it's just that. And it also bears the question, do we need to uh, take, take a step back and look at our valuation system and make sure that we don't have lingering valuation issues held over from society because society at its at its worst and maybe even its best just looks for symmetry and goes oh she sure is pretty and that's it (laughs) (laughs) and that's the extent of their ability to connect and and to to understand you know what exactly what you're describing so it's making me wonder if because those things can lurk you know they can really lurk in the depths of of your past and within your subconscious without you even realizing they're pulling your strings. Well, that is the journey, isn't it? Reevaluating our value system at all times. Mm. Always re reconfiguring, restructuring and being open to new information, new patterns. Uh, Beethoven's focus on the present moment that he was in, his ac- acute awareness of his surroundings and his deep introspection all points toward this mindful approach to creation. Mm. All of creation, there's not one aspect of creation less or more significant than another. Whether or not he would have, Beethoven would have described it in those terms is another another uh, conversation. But another vital aspect to all of this, to unlocking creative potential, is just learning to not only be present in the appreciation of relabeling all things to not be significant or insignificant, just the appreciation without labels of, of life, of form. Another aspect though is learning to express gratitude. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because cultivating gratitude is one of the most powerful ways to nurture an appreciation for beauty and goodness. It's simply through gratitude. And if you don't, if you don't have one of our kinetic belief guided journals, you can start by making a, just a habit of writing down a few things every single day that, um, that you're grateful for. And isn't gratitude always just that really quick fix? It's the medicine that you need to take. So if you feel off, um, it doesn't have to even be oh, I'm sad or anxious or depressed, something negative, but maybe you just don't feel as energized and mindful as you typically do. A simple moment of gratitude is always the cure, and it kicks in immediately. You can sense it within your spirit. It it ignites something that connects you to higher source almost immediately. Yeah, and if you're new at this, look, it doesn't have to be for big things. Often it's the simple everyday things that bring you the most joy, like we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Then elevate your gratitude list to begin including things that are not currently present, perhaps in your environment. 
Instead of waiting for the new car to be grateful for the new car, which is inaccurate anyway, but you go ahead and learn to be grateful where you are. In other words, they exist within the the things that we choose to be grateful for resist in the architectural rendering of our highest desires. Wow. And that's why journaling is so vitally important. One such creative creator who practiced gratitude saw it reflected in his work and was the most famous American painter, or one of them anyway. I, I, I should never say the most. I, it's an emphatic, <laughs> isn't it? We talked about this yesterday. But it could be your opinion. Okay. Well, anyway, it was an American painter, Norman Rockwell. How did I know you were going to say that? I don't, because I felt you it. know me. Rockwell. <laughs> I saw it. And while he might not have explicitly labeled his practice as gratitude, his artwork and his lifestyle heavily emphasized themes of appreciation and mm-hmm. themes of joy and gratitude for simple everyday life and for all people. Yes. And he's best known, for example, for his cover illustrations of everyday life scenarios for the, it was the Saturday Evening Post, a magazine. And he, was, he did that for more than four decades. But he had an extraordinary ability to find beauty and to find warmth and, and story in the ordinary Something that suggested this deep sense of gratitude for uh, what the rest of us might construe as just everyday experiences. I was speaking with my mother just a couple of days ago, and she described, she went up to, uh, she said, the mountains to visit uh, some family last weekend. And she was in a park up in the mountains, and she described it as being just this picture-perfect day in the park with children playing and running and other people walking down the path and greeting her and saying hello what a fine day this is and the little dogs running around and (laughs) and she said it was just like a norman rockwell (laughs) well rockwell's depictions were often this idyllic showcasing the goodness and the humor that's found in everyday life and even in his works that touched on all of these the the other serious issues uh, social issues Mm -hmm. There was always a sense of optimism, and there was a, a portrayed belief in the inherent goodness of people. Well, it's this positivity and this sense of appreciation that suggested this profound underlying gratitude for life and, and really for all of humanity. And he once said, he said, I unconsciously decided that even if it wasn't an ideal world, it should, it should be. And so he painted only the ideal aspects of it. And it was his practice of painting this ideal world that suggests that his gratitude for life's potential, for life's beauty, for life's goodness, even amid all of its challenges. But through his art, you see, he encouraged others to see also and to appreciate the joy and all of the humor that could be. And that is, if you'll look hard enough and if you'll imagine it to be, and also to find dignity in ordinary moments. Mm. And he may not have explicitly stated that he was practicing gratitude. (laughs) However, his appreciation for the ordinary and his optimism and his focus on all of those positive aspects of life demonstrated that practice of gratitude. And his work, and even with my mother the other day, has helped countless others appreciate and to find 
gratitude in their own daily lives. Well, and you're really connecting all the dots here for us right now because you're using words now in the podcast, you know, seemingly insignificant, um, everyday, the typical, and you're you're subtly pulling back back the curtain to to go surprise that is life at the everyday life um that's life life is not the vacation that you take once a once a year you know life is not the fun party that happened 6 months ago life is everyday it's the present moment that is occurring again and again and again and again and the it's the habitual things that we're participating in that they better be beautiful and we better be able to find beauty in them because that is the 99.9% percentage of our life that we're going to be experiencing. This is part of what comes to enlightenment because when you get this, when you understand the things that we're talking about, you stop waiting for that big moment to come yes. in and sweep you off your feet and carry you away into the uh, enlightened uh, atmosphere of joy and happiness and all things being wonderful. Can I interject just a funny little story right here? Of course. Okay. You said sweep you off your feet. I saw this hilarious interview with this guy and his home had um, caught fire and he was, you know, they they were recovering and working through this thing. And then he said, but you know, nobody was hurt. Nothing major was damaged. We're just sort of trying to regroup here. He said there was so much smoke though. He said, however, he said, I did, you know, he said, you always hear women swooning about firemen and all firemen he was like but he said i passed out from the smoke and he said and a big fireman picked me up and carried me out of my house and he was like and i get it he's swooning (laughs) he was swept (laughs) off his feet swept off his feet by the big fireman (laughs) so rather than waiting for the disaster to send a hero to come sweep you off your feet we learn to appreciate the what otherwise would have been the insignificant right yes (laughs) Oh, I just love the visual of somebody's dad going, okay, okay, I, I see <laughs> yes. what you're talking about. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Well, and then part of the process here too is to learn to cultivate empathy. Uh, and and this, I tell one. you, this was a challenge for myself early on, many uh, several decades ago, because you feel like when you're overcoming, then everybody else should also be doing the same strongman work that you're doing. Mm. But you learn to cultivate empathy by nurturing kindness within yourself first. And you try to understand and share the feelings of others through the process. Now, this might involve, you know, active listening. It could involve expressing compassion in Mm. your everyday interactions or volunteering your time and energy to help others. Back in the day when we were doing a lot of um, uh, work with in, impoverished and families in the Appalachian Mountains, for example, and even on some Native American reservations. We would have some others to come often, and, and maybe parents would send some teenager there's, that's struggling at home and in life in general to come and do some volunteer work and to reach out to someone else, to help make someone else's life a little bit easier. And the takeaway would always be they would learn to understand and begin to have some compassion for someone else other than thinking that they have some miserable lot in life. So volunteering Mm. is a a wonderful way to begin to open the eyes of your heart, uh, to begin seeing the the, uh, less fortunate, you could say. Well, on the last podcast, I really enjoyed when you were speaking to assuming everything is good. And we can overlay that with people as well. Um, You know, because things that 
we are so quick to assume that it was done with malice or ill intent. It was thoughtlessness. It was just someone not having the mindfulness, not having the awareness as they are moving through their life that could you know, be containing any number of issues that we don't know about. But I know that I've, it, there have been times in my life when I have a higher level of maybe stress going on in my life. I project that onto other people and I will assume the worst without even meaning to. It's just, it's literally the first thought that sort of coats that issue. And so practicing mindfulness, practicing gratitude, practicing this, this way of thinking, the space that we're holding for ourselves um, will really get rid of that completely. And it's no different than assuming the best. Yeah. This is someone that could be struggling and having a really difficult time and you don't give them uh, one second of your own time because mm. you're projecting your own walk and your yeah. own historical path into their life. So we learn to be empathetic. Yeah. Van Gogh, Van Gogh was known <laughs> for his empathy, which yes. influenced his creation. Yes, he was. And even though Van Gogh was tormented by mental health issues throughout his life, he demonstrated, didn't he, this remarkable ability to empathize with the plight of the people that were around him and his empathy profoundly impacted his artwork. He spent this significant portion of his life living amongst the, the laboring classes in all these rural areas. And his, his early works, actually like the, the potato eaters, uh, reveal this deep sympathy for the hardships faced by the peasants during that time. And his empathetic connection with his subjects, what that does is it allows us as viewers of his paintings to feel the hardships of the humanity mm. of all of the people that he was depicting. In his letters to his brother, Theo, Van Gogh often wrote about his desire to depict the truth of people's lives, not to gloss over them and their hardship, but to to reveal their strength and their dignity in the face of the adversity that they were in, involved with. He once wrote, he, he said, um, I say it again, work against indifference. Perseverance is not easy, but things that are easy mean little. Mm. And then when he moved to the south of France, his wow. paintings became brighter. And you can see it in his works. They became more vibrant, more energized, and seemingly alive. But his empathy went on to remain a key aspect of his work. Even when he was painting landscapes of, or, or still lives, he tried to convey the emotional essence of his subjects in his work. Now, does this go hand in hand with, again, what we talked about on the last podcast, which is like calling to like. So, um, you know, if you're, if you are exercising an empathy and stirring that up and pursuing it within yourself toward other people in this very, um, tangible way, you know, a very purposed way, it seems as though you're going to be drawing that to yourself as well. The universe and those around you will, you'll in turn receive empathy and you'll get to experience empathy for yourself. Yes, and what it also does, Meg, is it enables you to, to not relate in a sense that despair becomes your despair or mm. anger becomes your anger, strife becomes your strife, or fear becomes your fear. To properly empathize with another is to understand their state of negativity without it becoming yours. Mm. 
without reasoning with it or rationalizing it for something that you should be partaking of, especially if it's of a net negative energetic. So it helps you to understand rather than to, to receive mm -hmm. in the same sense. Yeah. And it's, we're talking about strong emotions here, aren't we? Yeah, we are. They, they, these kind of things creep up on you. These are the things that sort of jump out of the closet. Well, that's empathy, though. <laughs> and, but, but that is, that is yeah. also it's enacting the power of the light within you to be uh, a force of nature in this realm. Mm. In fact, the strong emotional resonance of Van Gogh's artwork, the characteristic that perhaps most defines his work is a testament to his empathy. And even though his own life was filled with all of these um, personal struggles of his own, or perhaps because of them, he was able to empathize with the world around him and then to translate that empathy into paintings that continue to touch people, mm. what, over a century later. And interesting that exactly like Beethoven, he's this shining example of, of seeing um, such beauty and vibrance and richness in, in what we are calling every day. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to, through all of this, if you want to release the creative power of your own personal kinetic belief, it is important to become adept at uh, creating peaceful surroundings in your life. Mm. And creating that harbor of your highest expectations, a place where they are safe to dwell, a peaceful and harmonious environment, because that's the thing that is going to nurture these qualities, isn't it? Wow. I love that. You're creating a harbor for your highest expectations. That's incredibly powerful. A peaceful place. Mm. And this could involve organizing your living space like we continually do and just and maintaining <laughs> that living space spending time in nature or it could involve surrounding yourself with art and with music that you find beautiful and that you find inspiring uh, Monet the the French renowned painter and one of the founders of the impressionist movement is he is actually an ex excellent example of another artist who created peaceful surroundings in order to stimulate his creativity we visited the Boston Museum of Fine Art just a few mm -hmm. weeks ago. And the, the, those paintings of Monet, they were, well, to me, I'm not going to ever speak for you not kidding, <laughs> until you cue me. But his, his artwork was deeply yeah. moving, wasn't it? Yes, it's just beautiful. it was. And he had this deep connection and it was obvious with nature and he sought tranquility in his surroundings and his most recognizable works, they are serene and they're mm. filled with light and they reflect the, an intimate bond with the environment. Mm. And Monet's art, it, it didn't just depict peaceful scenes either. It was also a product of peaceful surroundings that he in life cultivated for himself. And you can read about it. In, in uh, the 1800s, 1883, he moved to this small village in the Normandy region of northern France. And there he, it said that he, well, he purchased a property and meticulously went about designing it. And he cultivated this extensive garden there on the property, which included this lily pond, which I wish we had one, 
and had this Japanese bridge and scenes that would become recurring themes in his art. You can see it in his paintings. But he once said that I'm following nature without being able to grasp her. Mm-hmm. And I perhaps owe having become a painter to flowers, mm. inspired by all of that. But his home in, um, in Giverning became this sanctuary where he could control the landscape that he wanted to paint. And it was his living artwork, and he spent so many years just cultivating it in order to provide this constant source of inspiration for himself. So the, the point of this is, is that the serene atmosphere of this space also gave him a uh, this, this peaceful place to reflect and to create. His water lily series, you can see it among mm-hmm. some of his most famous works. They, they were created in this, this environment, reflecting the peace and the tranquility of, of his surroundings. But his emphasis on painting, as he would say, in plain air, meaning outdoors, in a peaceful and in controlled environment, really does illustrate how critical the creation of serene surroundings are to anyone's creative uh, creative creator process to your own artistry, whatever that may be. And his gardens served as both his muse and sanctuary. And hopefully our home, well, it is to me, it's, it, it becomes a muse of sorts. Yes. And we talk about it when we come back from doing concerts or we've done a, a workshop. We're going back to our muse and a, a sanctuary to, to revitalize ourselves and to replenish and to refurbish. And just like with, with Monet, it's, his garden supported his sense of exploration, that of exploring light and exploring color in the hues of nature and, and the world around him and, and, and his atmosphere that he was uh, protecting and establishing there. Mm-hmm. And all of that, those are the hallmarks of, and you can see it in his style and, and the ensuing impressionist movement that came out of that and this really requires this that daily maintenance doesn't it i mean it requires this uh constant mindfulness of what you are allowing into your life um how you've set everything up and and you can also see how this is going to get you way down the road toward um operating from higher consciousness Mm -hmm. all the time because if you if you have placed self-imposed obstacles in your space in your living space between you and higher consciousness, you're, you've just set up an obstacle course. And then by the time you get to, through the darn thing, you're exhausted. And okay, now let's work on higher consciousness. No, it's, you, we, it's just so easy. It's so easy to make your environment work for you and help to lift you up toward higher consciousness um, instead of it being 50 things that you have to <laughs> overcome with all your power and, you know, oh, let me just overcome this conversation and that mess and that mess and these dirty yes, floors. Yes. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's almost a cheat. It's, it's a way of sort of skipping the line <laughs> to so, higher consciousness. So we get up every day to rework our world into the manner we choose. To rework yeah. our world into the manner we choose. I'm mm. getting up today to rework my world into the manner I choose. Yes. And so to do that, I'm going to seek out positive influences. Mm-hmm. I'm going to seek out a mm-hmm. peaceful space. I'm going to seek out the beauty and the, mm-hmm. the uh, intrinsic uh, kindness of, of nature and, and the essence of all that can be in what is. You know, you and I were recently sitting out at a cafe and 
we were each had an iced coffee and I had thought to bring my book with me that I was reading and we were sitting under an umbrella and there was this perfect ocean breeze coming through and I just remember stopping putting my book down for a moment and thinking what could be better what could be better Mm -hmm. than this and and again it's one of these everyday occurrences that if we pause long enough to embrace it and acknowledge it and sense it and feel it you realize that you're peaking (laughs) that this is peak life. Life can only be so many different things and understanding the, the extent and the fullness of what it can be in these, again, I think it's so funny that we're calling these everyday moments because that's what they are, but that is life. Life is every, it's just life. And the answer to the question, what can be better than this is nothing if the best is coming from within. Yes. Because it has nothing to do with the without. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to actually do with the ocean breeze. The ocean breeze just happened to be there while you were experiencing the best. Yes. And in all of this, we seek out positive influences rather than the negative. And so we choose to, in all of this, surround ourselves with people who embody these qualities. And if you can't find the person, then hang out with yourself until you do. Because their attitudes and behaviors are going to influence your own. Can we hover here for a minute? This is so important. Of course. This is everything, right? If you, can you say that again? If there's nobody to hang out with, What did you say? Hang out with yourself. (laughs) Hang out with yourself. Because (laughs) there is a reason for this piece of wisdom. There's a very, very deep-rooted, eternal, ancient wisdom reason for that being true. And it's that if you fill in the gaps with the wrong people, you are eternally and forever blocking the the people that are supposed to be in your life, the people whose frequency frequency you are supposed to commune with, the the soulmates that you're supposed to know and get to know and and have these experiences together. But we've talked many many times on the podcast about how faith creates a vacuum, and when you allow things to not be in the vacuum, it creates space for it to be filled up. The universe abhors a vacuum. It will do something about it. Yeah, and but it's you have going. To- create it. It will fill up whatever your expectations are for yes. that for that space. Yeah. And our job is to protect this space from from uh, uh, thorns and weeds yeah. and uh, the volunteers that we don't want to show yeah. up and to fill that space with. But now don't despair. Somebody's thinking, well, I don't know anybody. I've already exhausted the personalities of my small town. And there's not <laughs> one here that I want to spend a uh, 10 minutes in in perfect um, harmony and alignment with do not despair because we're just that's just you're just looking at in-person relationships there there are many other ways to spend time with someone else you could seek out books and spend time with characters you could you can seek out films or podcasts like this one and hang out with Maggie and myself <laughs> Or other media uh, created by other people who also inspire you. People find daily inspiration by spending time with with uh, myself and with Meg, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and through these podcasts, the website, the the inner circle, or some other means. You could watch us on YouTube, but spend time with people. Choose the influences that are positive that you can begin to interact with in whatever manner. 
with in whatever way. Jacques Cousteau, great example. He, he was an explorer. He was a conservationist. He was a filmmaker. Uh, I found a great deal of inspiration from the kind of life that he was living. Innovator, scientist, photographer. He was an author and a researcher. And his, his discoveries in the world of ocean exploration have had this lasting uh, impact on much of the world. I know that John Denver uh, was inspired by Cousteau. Dan Fogelberg spoke about the creative inspiration that he got from him. Throughout his life, Cousteau sought out and embraced positive influences. In fact, one of the most uh, significant influences in his career was his collaboration with this engineer, Emily Gagnon. And those two worked together to invent the Aqualung, which was this uh, one of the first of its type. It was underwater, underwater breathing apparatus, and what it did was it just revolutionized at that time scuba diving and, and uh, enabled Cousteau and his sons, his family, and all the others to, to uh, really get into ocean exploration in a way that the world had never seen before. But Gagnon's expertise in engineering it actually complemented, and that's, that's a word to remember, it complemented Cousteau's understanding of underwater exploration, and then their collaboration led to one of the most significant inventions in the field at that time. And Gagnon, uh, in addition to him, and uh, Cousteau surrounded himself with this, you could, with a team of divers, scientists, filmmakers that were on the ship. John Denver out on the ship writing his song Calypso. But all of these people were, they were also experts in their respective fields and their collective knowledge here. And all of those skills that they brought to the deck of the Calypso were integral to the success of, of Cousteau's explorations and to the production of this, this wonderful, groundbreaking underwater series of documentaries that they produced over the years. Cousteau's approach to exploration was interdisciplinary and it was collaborative. And he recognized the value of expertise in all of these diverse fields. And he understood that the most significant discoveries are often made at the intersection of different disciplines. And it was, it was this approach and his ability to seek out and to embrace all of these other positive influences and bring them all together in cooperation that made him one of the most influential figures in the, the field of ocean exploration. A great example of that. And you, you see it in, in so many other industries, in the tech industry. Uh, AI, the development of open AI, and, which is now closed, I think, but bringing together expertise <laughs> in, in order to establish these concepts, being uh, particularly choosy about who you surround yourself with. And of course, we're talking about in a professional manner, in a professional pursuit now. But KB's learned to practice all of these things and go to work every day at developing the criteria necessary to manifest, believe for, and hold on to those expectations through these modalities of kinetic belief in order to perfect their lives. Another thing that is so vital to the success of being a KB is to practice self-compassion. Be gentle and forgiving with yourself. 
Look, everyone has their own pace for personal growth. Because all of this that we're talking about today, Maggie, I don't think anyone's going to just get up today and, and, and perfect all of this. So there is a pacing to it. But acknowledge your efforts. Even if progress seems slow to you, it's okay to have days where you feel out of sync with these qualities that we're talking about. But just remember that it is a journey and that every step, no matter how small the step may seem to be, it's going to bring you closer to nurturing all of these qualities within you. Practicing self-compassion is... Uh, it's huge, right? I mean, oh my good, oh my goodness! Just the the ability to allow for imperfection, and that's why we call it a practice. It's the kinetic belief practice because even if you have the perfect day, like let's say today's the day, oh man, every every conversation I had, every thought I had, every man, you know, I journaled, I did it, I nailed it, man, I nailed today. Well. Now there's tomorrow. So, I mean, even when you achieve something, there's this really wonderful repetition to life that requires you to sort of constantly massage and constantly work that muscle and and look toward the higher and the better one step or 10 steps or whatever's available for that day. Well, isn't it interesting that the ego doesn't seem to mind having compassion for someone else, mm. but not for yourself? Mm-hmm. Because it's almost in a way of judging someone to be less than you. Yeah. To be struggling in a way that perhaps they really aren't. But boy, it makes you feel good. Yeah. To think someone is having a harder time with life than you are. Mm. So compassion steps in. <laughs> One of the most influential people who displayed self-compassion, actually, that I can think of at the moment, would be Mahatma Gandhi known as the leader of the Indian nationalism against the British rule at that time, Gandhi is renowned worldwide for his philosophy of nonviolent resistance and is actually considered to be the father of the Indian nation. But his teachings have inspired numerous social and political leaders, including Martin Luther King Jr. and, and Nelson Mandela. But his life's journey was one of continuous learning, if you look at it. He was always learning. He was always open to developing and into understanding more beyond what he already knew. And so adaptation, learning, self-reflection, all of those were components of what was making him who he was at that time. And he wasn't born a perfect leader. I'm not sure anyone is. Rather, he... He made mistakes. He learned from his mistakes. He evolved over time because of those mistakes. For instance, in his early years as a lawyer in South Africa, he held some some actually very prejudiced views that were pretty common at the time. He just inherited those viewpoints. But he later acknowledged the mistakes. He learned from them, and he grew and developed out of that place and then devoted his life to fighting for equality and for and justice for all. But even so, in the midst of all that, he struggled with feelings of inadequacy, he wrote about, and, and self-doubt. In his autobiography, the, the Story of My Experiments with Truth, Gandhi wrote extensively about his all of his personal struggles, his failures, his, his uh, lessons that he learned, and some of his successes. But he made this conscious effort to treat himself with compassion and with understanding. 
which allowed him to, to grow and to remain resilient in the face of all of those challenges. Self-compassion, and that's what I want to key in on here, that is what helped Gandhi maintain his commitment to nonviolence and truth, even when his efforts were met with resistance or at the time failed to bring immediate change. He didn't quit. He didn't cave in. He didn't stop. His ability to forgive himself and to learn from his mistakes was, I'm telling you, it was integral to his development as a leader and to as an influence to, to other people at that time. Another really powerful modality here is to practice engaging in reflection. In other words, spend some time in quiet reflection every day and consider what you've done, uh, done well in your life and, then, and where you can improve in your life. Use this time to set intentions on how you want to embody beauty and like we're talking about, to embody kindness and those things that go beyond words. How can I embody goodness? Albert Einstein, great example of a scientist who greatly valued and consistently practiced the art of reflection, leading to his world-changing discoveries. He was known for developing the theory of relativity, one of the, the, the two pillars of modern physics, the other being quantum mechanics. Einstein's work is today celebrated for oh, its profound impact on the uh, on our understanding of the fundamental laws of the universe. His equation E equals MC squared describes the equivalence of energy and mass, and that alone transformed the field of physics. But now think about it just for a moment. For better or worse, that one discovery led to the development of nuclear energy, to understanding of particle physics, to cosmology, to general relativity, all of those things coming out of one man and, and one discovery. But here's the thing, Einstein, he didn't arrive at those discoveries through experimentation alone, but rather through deep thought experiments and introspective reflection. Well, what's going on here? He was tapping into higher consciousness, which is beyond him, which is beyond any of us, but accessible to all of us. And he often engaged in what he referred to as thought experiments, where he would just imagine physical scenarios and he would, he would work through them in his mind. And his thought experiment of a person falling off a roof, for example, led him to his insights about gravity as a um, curvature of space-time. But Einstein was also known for his reflective nature outside of his scientific work. And he often made these profound observations and profound in the sense that no one else was imagining these things at that time. But he meditated about the human condition. He meditated about the nature of knowledge and, and understanding and where does it come from. And he meditated on the interplay between science and religion. And so his work just, it demonstrates the powerful role that reflection can play in all of our lives, not only in scientific discovery, but discovery of in the, who we are, the essence of being in general within each one of us. So it's by stepping back from the immediate problem, whatever it is, to contemplate the, the bigger, broader questions in life 
when you and I get away for a little bit of time, just for us, it could be to fly fishing out in Montana or hiking the trails in Colorado somewhere, but just to have some, some quiet time in nature. The, the, the broader questions that we're talking about, answers come to us. And, and we talk about these things, and it, it, it comes from beyond us into the present tense of our now. Einstein was able to arrive at his insights that have fundamentally reshaped our understanding of the physical world in the same way. So I think it's vital that we remember that nurturing of these qualities within ourselves is an ongoing process. None of these things that we're talking about today, Meg, are one and done. This is the lifestyle of a kinetic believer. Everyone has the capacity to recognize and to express beauty, to recognize and express kindness and goodness, not because of a thing, or but because of they are extracting it from the within. And it's just a matter of finding the right practices then that's going to resonate with you in order to be able to inhabit these, these things. Well, and you just use the word lifestyle. It's very illuminating um, for, for all these com- concepts that you've been walking us through because lifestyle is composed of many, many, many things. And as we can, we need to set up our lifestyle to have to support us in success to support us in succeeding where we're accessing and living in and existing in in that higher consciousness state um just the ability to do that can we can get really close to it if we set up our lifestyle in the in the right way and we can also alternatively um you know really ruin the effort before it's even begun by having a disconnected lifestyle and so when it comes to setting ourselves up for success, you, you have the mindfulness and then the, the natural setting, whether, and that, that doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to go drive and find a mountain in the woods every day, right? I mean, this, it's a place of peace. It's a place of awareness. It's a place of, of simplicity. And as we cultivate these things, it's so important to keep in mind that you're not just cultivating a hygge space for the sake of the word. You know, you're cultivating it so that it, is creating, like you said, that that safe harbor for your highest viewpoints and your higher consciousness to uh, to dwell, really, so that you can easily access these things. That's the key. We want to easily access creativity, easily access um, higher consciousness. In the moment of being in the present tense moment of now, absent labels and defined um, uh, titles and all these other things, like I can I can walk into your gallery. And to find that space of, of peace mm-hmm. and just being without, without determining that this is good, this is bad, but just to be. Mm-hmm. Or in the, while listening to music mm-hmm. and these simple things. Well, there are hallmarks um, that we can see as red flags too. So, you know, if you start to feel a frenzied, anxious, lethargic, disconnected, negative emotions are starting to creep in, that's a wonderful embrace that embrace the idea that you can observe that and go, wow, I know that I need to change my lifestyle. I know that I, some, something needs to be updated mm-hmm. in my environment. Something's not working for me here. Well, you know, the, the philosopher Nietzsche at a moment of deep disconnection wrote, <laughs> he said for happiness, how little suffices for happiness. Mm-hmm. The least thing precisely, the gentlest thing, the lightest thing, a lizard's rustling, a breath, a whisk, an eye glance, 
Little makes up the best happiness. Mm. Be still. Mm. Why is happiness found in the lightest thing? One would ask. Because true happiness is not caused by the thing. Mm. Happiness is the state of being in our inner space, consciousness itself, in a condition that is unobstructed by the labels of form. Inner space consciousness, without regard to anything other than gratitude for beauty, for abundance, for peace, is one and the same with the essence of who we are. Mm. Then it's the cognitive awareness of that which is exquisite, that creates a vacuum for more to come. And it's from the inner space created by the expectation of the perfected, the unconditioned consciousness itself, that the joy of I am emanates, Mm. you see, into our environment. However, to be aware of the greatest source of that which mesmerizes We must quieten thought storms as they arise. A high degree of attentiveness in all of this is required. You have to be willing to do the work of thought. To be still, to see, to listen, and to be present. And then become aware of being aware. So we say, I am, and then add nothing to it. Be aware of the fullness that then fills the inner space. And since within your essence, the unformed awareness that you are without life, without obligation, without substance, the essence of you that is untouched by age, that is untouched by status, by wealth, the essence of you that is neither good or the bad. It is this spacious wonder of all creation that you occupy. It's the immortal form that you simply are. It's from awareness of the timeless existence that the purpose of the perpetual is in unique harmony with and the abundance that uh, of that which is joy. Someone recently asked me, they s- said, should we consider relabeling what is suffering and what is not suffering? Well, it's a good start. But there's, <laughs> there, is a, there is a verse in the Bible which says to count it all joy. And then somebody always asks, well, what about suffering? How can we call suffering joy? You know, Jordan Peterson talks about human suffering a lot. And so it's an important topic, I think, for understanding. And the question is, how a person labels and perceives suffering is, well, it, it's, it's really complex. And what makes it complex is that it's, it's personal. And it's deeply intertwined with their own individual beliefs and their experiences and their uh, and cultural contexts. And so... That said, for the kinetic believer, redefining our perception of suffering is it's really helpful for better understanding and managing that uh, uh, what may be difficult experiences that you bring into uh, the present tense moment. First of all, it's crucial to understand that suffering is a part of the human condition to be overcome, even though it has different degrees. 
what may be challenging for one, for example, in the exact same circumstances, it could appear as just being insurmountable for another person. So we all experience discomfort. Everybody experiences pain. Everyone experiences loss and hardship in many various different forms. Recognizing and validating these experiences is important because it allows us, first of all, to, to empathize with others like we're talking about. But our perception of suffering can often amplify the distress someone else feels. For example, if, if they view suffering as a, a sign of failure or something to be avoided at all costs, then they're going to struggle to cope when faced with adversity. Or like some people will do, they just will avoid trying something new at all out of the fear of failing, which to them is a very real form of suffering. On the other hand, if we view suffering as an opportunity for growth or as just part of life's natural ebb and flow, well, we might find it easier to persevere then and to maintain our well-being during difficult times. Babe Ruth, one of the greatest players in the history of baseball, was renowned for not just for record-setting home-run achievements that are in the record book still to this day, but also for his unusual high number of strikeouts. A lot of people don't know that, but he was the king of strikeouts as well. He embodied this a high-risk, high-reward philosophy at the plate. And so he embraced the reality of striking out as an inherent part of his quest to become a home-run king. And so his acceptance of failure in the form of strikeouts, was intrinsically linked to his extraordinary success. Ruth once said that every strike brings me closer to the next home run. That's a great philosophy because this outlook, what it did is it showcased his understanding that every failure was a learning opportunity, bringing him one step closer to his next success. And Ruth's career embodied this powerful lesson on the value of resilience and the acceptance of failure and the relentless pursuit of success. So relabeling suffering, it doesn't mean denying pain. It doesn't mean not striking out. It doesn't, it, or, or glossing over hardship. But what it does is it involves changing our relationship with suffering. And this could mean just, you know, viewing all these different uh, difficult experiences as an opportunity for learning, an opportunity to get closer to the goal, to manifesting the desired outcome, seeing pain as a signal that something needs to change or understanding suffering as a shared human experience that can foster empathy and connection through the process. And there are so many philosophies, Meg, that have come out of this and therapeutic approaches such as stoicism and cognitive behavioral therapy which promote sort of a, a shift in perspective, but it encourages uh, people to focus on what they can control, their responses or attitudes, rather than what they, they can't control, the external events, what all of them are going to do about it, and the actions of other people. It's the attitude of gratitude, however, not for the undesired thing, but while the undesired thing is trying to get us to become emotionally attached to the strikeout, we remain grateful for all that can be for the opportunity to hit the next home run. And therefore, even though the empirical evidence surrounding our present tense moment may be 
projecting on the scoreboard, you just struck out. You are a loser. You struck out again. The, the, the sights and the sounds of our best desire have yet to manifest. We know that we're one step closer in that journey of life to experiencing through the through the process of the journey, the the best life has to offer. And it's not ultimately the home run, but it is in the pursuit of it that brings satisfaction and the optimism of happiness and the present tense moment, power and strength of joy. Well, and this is a great reminder, this story and everything you just said. It's just, it's such a good reminder that as a kinetic believer, a big part of our success goes back to reframing what things that we, you know, what we used to frame as failure or sadness or suffering, um, reframing it as, as opportunity, as one step closer, as a, as a learning curve that you just had to participate in. Um, and, and then even attaching positive emotions to these difficult circumstances that we are, uh, that we have to experience to grow. You know, you have to have friction for growth. You have to have resistance for growth. Um, just as, as you started off by saying that nothing easy is beautiful. Nothing easy is worthwhile. The, you know, embrace these difficulties because it is the only way. And without difficulty, you know, there's nothing really worse. Nothing could be worse than non-growth, than stagnation. You know, if you thought suffering was difficult, try not suffering and being mediocre and Mm -hmm. and living a life of mediocrity for 80 years. Now that's that's true suffering. Well, friction is a, often a part of life, isn't it? Mm. And our understanding and perception of friction will profoundly impact our ability to cope and to thrive. Yeah. It's powerfully beneficial to reevaluate and to relabel our concept of suffering, depending on your individual experiences in order to go on and promote resilience, to promote personal growth, and like you're talking about, the manifestation of well-being. Kinetic belief journaling is it is one of the most powerful tools that can help align anybody's thoughts and actions and beliefs toward their goals and all of their aspirations, much like the, the, the famous people that we've been talking about here. Because this form of journaling, it involves actively recording and reaffirming your beliefs, aspirations, and reflections, fostering a deep sense of self-awareness and clarity and purpose. For instance, Babe Ruth's acceptance of strikeouts could be journaled as a kinetic belief in the necessary relationship between failure and success. Just like Albert Einstein's uh, reflective thought experiments, a kinetic belief journal could serve as a personal lab for examining and reframing perspectives. Similar to to Gandhi's practice of self-compassion, journaling uh, provides a space to extend kindness towards oneself and at the same time reflect on personal growth. As with Jacques Cousteau, embracing the positive influences, a kinetic belief journal can help individuals define and to go and seek the positive elements that fuel their journey. And it's through regular kinetic belief journaling that one can center their mindset around resilience and positivity, introspection and growth while fostering a mindset akin to those who have achieved greatness in all of those respective fields. Well, let's work on some highest viewpoints mm, yes. for all the Cousteaus in the audience today. <laughs> 
to say this out loud. Say, I embrace all experiences. I embrace all experiences. Both the challenges and the triumphs. Both the challenges and the triumphs. As necessary parts of my journey. (laughs) As necessary parts of my journey. Toward growth. Toward growth. Every single failure. Every single failure. Is not an end. It's not an end. But a stepping stone. But a stepping stone. Leading me closer to success. Leading me closer to success. I possess the resilience. Mm, I possess the resilience. To overcome obstacles. To overcome obstacles. And to persevere in the face of adversity. And to persevere in the face of adversity. I am confidently. I'm confidently. Continuously. Continuously. Learning. Learning. Evolving. Evolving. And strengthening my understanding. And strengthening my understanding. Of the world and my place within it. Of the world and my place within it. So I extend compassion. I extend compassion. I extend forgiveness. I extend forgiveness. Toward myself. Toward myself. For any past mistakes. For any past mistakes. And I'm using them. I'm using them. As opportunities. They're opportunities. For personal growth. For personal growth. I actively seek out. I actively seek out. And embrace. And embrace. Positive influences. Positive influences. That inspire and that uplift me. That inspire and and uplift me. Because I want to tell you something. Let me tell you something. My journey is unique and valuable. My journey is unique and valuable. And so I honor the progress that I've made so far. I honor the progress that I've made so far. I am so open. I'm so open. To new perspectives. To new perspectives. And ideas. And ideas. Recognizing that, you know what? Recognizing that, you know what? (laughs) Growth often comes from change. Growth often comes from change. All of my thoughts. All of my thoughts. All of my words. All of my words. And actions. And actions. They are aligned with my deepest values. They're aligned with my deepest values. And aspirations. And aspirations. I am so deserving of success. (laughs) I am so deserving of success. (laughs) And with every single day. And with every single day. I am moving closer. I'm moving closer. To achieving all of my goals. To achieving all of my goals. Wow, what a fun podcast. And thank you for taking us through not just our journey, Steve, but the journey of so many um, great thinkers and, and kinetic believers that have that have really come before us and paved that way. And if you want to check out the journal that we've discussed today, you can do that at kineticbelief.com or stephencanyon.com. Well, I've been inoculated with a strong dose today. <laughs> I think so. Oh, and, and send a text. Say hello to us at 844-844-0049. Mm. Sending out so much love mm. and so much light to all you KB creatives all around the world. Mm, yes. And thanks as usual, Steve, for all the wisdom. Bye. <laughs>